1: Entertainment inventory news, Mark. I forgot that we're supposed to entertain. Um, some people say we do. Some people say we're we're dead boring, Mark. So
0: we, you can't please it. everyone, can you? So how are you? Excellent, Brendan. And and I think you're right. I think one of the things about um, the, the podcast has gone through a, a funny development an evolution in my mind. At first, it was just you and I talking and. And I didn't even think about the other people listening. I try to say I'm um, less now because I know other people do listen, <laughs> and <laughs> and we um and we do we we have been made abundantly <laughs> aware that not everyone enjoys the format. Uh, it's a good thing, I think, that um, we have a wide enough audience that um, you know not we're, we're not all things to all people. There's some people who like listening to us and some who don't. That's good. And we
1: don't get too much podcast rage, which is good. So we don't get people winding their window down and screaming at us or winding their, winding their uh, pulling out their um, AirPods or whatever and, and yelling at us. So perhaps they do when they're listening, Mark, and uh, it fires them up for the day. Maybe, maybe not. If it does or it doesn't, send us an email, vetgurus at gmail.com. Um, Remember to log into our site, have a poke around, go to our Etsy store, there's a link there at vetgurus.com and consider purchasing one or more of our wonderful items of merchandise to help support the podcast, that would be fantastic, that would be fantastic and Mark I'll tell you what, it's, well this is a, a recorded one with no time stamp on it so it could be going out at any stage but... I was going to say it's been a funny year. Well, I better not say that because who knows when this <laughs> is coming out. But but it is a funny year. Um, it's been life is life is interesting and life is always a bit of a challenge. But um, I think life is good and it's. Um, I was musing, Mark. I was musing. <laughs> on what were you musing about? Brandon? Life of a veterinarian and the careers we have chosen or fallen into. I mean, I think I've just been given another. Um, Another mentee for ah, yes. the um, Australian Veterinary Association uh, mentorship program to help new graduates, and it just made me think about how we get to where we are, because I read through what the mentee had uh, aspirations of doing during their career, at the very start of their career. Uh and they're probably similar to what I've got at my end of my career. <laughs> my, and how we get to where we've got, because, I, you know, I don't think particularly I wanted specifically, and I know we've spoken about this briefly previously, to be just a veterinarian from day one in my, in my life, and I've sort of fallen into the niche of unusual and exotic pets and wildlife and as a zoo veterinarian at one stage. But, you know, I must admit, I... Some days when you're having a bad day, you think, Why am I doing this job? But overall I
0: don't regret it, Mark. What about you? I'm the same as you, Brendan. I, I definitely have days when I think, geez, this is hard, hard work. But the the benefits clearly outweigh any of those those negative moments. The unusual species that we get to deal with and and often deal with in you know cutting edge sort of fashion learning new things about them but i've got to say that one of the things and particularly as i've been you know stepping away from full time practice and doing a bit of locum work one of the things that uh, on reflection stands out to me about our profession is its connection to people that being a veterinarian and being a veterinarian who has a special interest in birds and unusual pets Really gives you a, a window onto um, the lives you know, and connections and emotions of people that—that's a rare thing these days. It's a genuine privilege, and and I know that um, probably uh, more than than the clinical stuff, which I still get to do. It's the connection with people that that is. You know, it was an unexpected surprise about our profession.
1: That was a very thoughtful answer, Mark. <laughs> I don't know how to reply to that, but yeah, very thoughtful answer. But I think you're saying that you have similar feelings to me about the whole <laughs> career um, that we've that we've chosen or been selected for, or that we've been thrown into, or that we've been lucky enough to to experience here. Yes. So enough <laughs> enough enough philosophizing mark i think we need to jump into i was going to say email but i see in our agenda that we haven't got any email down there mark so we look forward to lots of emails next week vet gurus at gmail.com say hello tell us a bit about where you are what practice you're in and what species? You say that would be fantastic.
0: We are a needy pair of old buggers, and and we really like enjoy <laughs> that feedback. We need some positive reinforcement uh, I,
1: of of um of the fact that there's people out there listening. <laughs> I mean, all the statistics say we, we we have a good a good number of people listening to us, but um, we like to hear from our listeners, don't we? Definitely. Now, what have you got for
0: us, Mark? News. News. I have the story of, and I love this story because um, it's about bats, and uh, bats are one of those species that um, that oh, has a huge ecological impact. But because they're nocturnal and are relatively secretive, and often uh, flying around, you know, not immediately in our line of sight, they're sort of not uppermost in our mind and. And they sort of, here in Australia at least, uh, it's it's often, unless you're appropriately vaccinated and have appropriate skills, um, because of the diseases they can carry, it's sort of like frowned on a little bit. But they're such an important species. I love all the articles that deal with them. And this one in particular discusses the story of a, a veterinarian, a veterinarian who uh, works as... A wildlife event at the Gorilla Doctors—that would be an exciting practice in Usanze, in Rwanda. Um I don't monkey around at the oh, Gorilla god. Doctors, do they, Mark? <laughs> oh, god! I, I had to put it in. <laughs> Zita <laughs> is a am just, just ignoring right completely. Off, <laughs> <it>? <laughs> um, uh, he's a bat champion, Brendan. And he's been searching for one of the critically endangered species in uh, Rwanda, Rhinolophus hilii. And he's been doing that for the last, uh, well, nine years. And the species had last been seen in, I think it was about 1989, uh, 30 or 40 years ago. And uh, this team uh, went out and set traps. I can't see in the article what sort of traps they were. Uh, they were they were mist nets, uh, nets stretched across trails where the bats were most likely to to um, to fly. And they did a fair bit of ecological clue, you know, that, uh, looking for clues about this particular species. Um, but they eventually were managed after uh, four nights. They managed to uh, find one of the distinctively horse-shaped, horseshoe-shaped-nosed bats that was completely different in terms of its fur and the shape of its nose, um, and they were certain they'd uh, rediscovered the species. And this sort of capture is particularly important. uh, Once they find an individual, it allows them to make recordings and get an acoustic identification that then tends to be much more that can be used much more widely and doesn't require the bats to be captured to identify them in a particular location so a particularly significant discovery and um and uh you know africa is the home to 20 percent of the world's bats but um there's been a dearth of research focus on the bats in that part of the world, and it's good to um, see that sort of grow that the people in Africa, the, the, the veterinarians in Africa are, uh, are looking to those species to learn more about them and to ensure that they're conserved. Yes,
1: and they managed to record its echolocation call and I think they're going to try and... Use that to find more of the mark by by recognizing that call. And we will have a link to that particular article, which was on sciencenews.org on our website, bedgurus.com. So, yeah, interesting article, Mark. mark gee, I'm going to try and summarize my, my mark, but it's uh, hedgehogs have got a lot to um, answer for, Mark. <laughs> um, Drug resistant bacteria evolved on hedgehogs, according to Study, Mark, um, long before the use of antibiotics, and the gist of this article is that methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, Mark (MRSa), they track the its evolution to hedgehogs hundreds of years ago, and they think that the basics of it is that um, there's lots of natural fungi uh, in, on, or on the on the um, hedgehog's skin. And they produced natural antibiotics that created an environment for drug resistance to involve in bacteria, Mark. And wow. they they looked at uh, – they, they did they, – it's a very good study of this. Um, they found they approached a team and they, they originally um, thought of this when they were looking at a freezer full of dead hedgehogs, Mark, <laughs> as you do at the University of Oxford. Of the animals they collected, 61% – carried the MRSA and they thought this is pretty damn high there so then they did another um, lot of research and they surveyed hedgehogs for 10 European countries and New Zealand and workers at Wildlife Rescue Centre swabbed the nose the skin and the feet of 276 animals and they found it was prevalent in hedgehogs in the United Kingdom, Scandinavia and the Czech Republic. Then they looked at Staphylores and they found 16 strains of the MRSA named after the gene and four. And they worked out the lineage marker and that that apparently the three oldest lineages emerged up to 200 years ago in hedgehog populations. And since then they periodically infected people and cattle long long before long before penicillin hit the market. So. The thought is that hedgehogs may be the source of nine of the sixteen lineages of the MRSA mark. So fascinating study this, Mark. Fascinating study. But it makes sense in that there were, you know, competing bugs on the on the skin and the feet and the um, spines, I suppose, of, of hedgehogs and, and that's how the MRSA evolved, Mark.
0: Jeez, what do you think um, of that? Well, I wonder, like, so I assume they're saying because hedgehogs live in, you know, on the ground in a relatively moist environment, in an, an environment where they're exposed to funguses on a regular basis, that's why they're, the natural flora of their prickly skin uh, contains these funguses. I wonder, what about echidnas, Brendan? I wonder what, our, what funguses are growing on our echidnas. Great thought, Mark, you'd expect there might be the possibility
1: of something similar happening on there, yeah. And they've now, their their follow-up studies are also looking at the soil community and the soil microbial community that I talk about in the last couple of paragraphs in that perhaps we can look at the little microbiomes there and, and see if there's another potential source that can confer resistance as well as sources of new antibiotics so um, really interesting article there um, so yes but there you go mark mrsa a fair number of the the, the subtypes or, or the um, types of it developed drug resistance that, that drug resistance developed in hedgehogs a couple of hundred years ago so yes If you don't look in the freezer, Mark, (laughs) you're not going to So you know, it's a good excuse to clean out your freezer, isn't it? (laughs) Um, It reminds me of one of the freezers at at Melbourne University and uh, whenever I've poked my head in that freezer, you'd be surprised at some of the species that are... Been in there for for many months, if not many years, there, Mark, and lots of um, lots of opportunities for studies uh, of, of all sorts of things. So there you go.
0: I wonder if they fluoresce. Those. Um, yeah. The
1: the, yeah, the well, commensal okay. So, I'd um, like to know what's in your freezer, Mark, um, <laughs> or maybe not. Uh, so, <laughs> maybe not. And whether it fluoresces <laughs> as well. <laughs> we never know. So there we go. There are two news stories, and let's jump into our main topic, which is uh, what we, haven't, we haven't done a huge amount of prep of this. I've sort of thrown this one... <laughs> As usual, well, not as usual. We do a reasonable amount of prep for some of these, but I've I've decided, Mark, to throw this one in your face, and we're going to win it. We are going to talk about toe amputations in reptiles. So obviously, not too many in snakes, now, Mark. So and we're mainly going to talk about the lizards. We we, we won't. Uh, yeah, let's confine it to lizards um, to make it a little bit. Um, Easier, rather than our our, our um chelonians as well, for instance, uh, and in particular the the classic ones that we we certainly do lots of toe amputations in practice. Other bearded dragons and um, some skinks as well, I suppose, and off the top of my head, the second most common. So, here's my question mark. Well, there's going to be
0: several questions. Isn't there? <laughs> I love your <laughs> questions.
1: They make What's me your anxious. technique? Uh, no. <laughs> Don't be, <laughs> be anxious. <nervous>. <laughs> it's just me. We're just chatting. What's your technique? And, and and there's I've got a few different thoughts and I've tried different things over the years as far as amputating these. So let's let's confine it even even to a smaller subset, Mark. Um, <laughs> partial toe amputations. So partial. we're taking it off at yes. you know, the first or the second
0: joint digit, the joint of the digit there, Mark. Well I think the key thing that I would say in answer to that question is that it's not just a single technique that there that there are a number of of not complicated relatively simple things that we try to do uh, to try and make the surgery if it if to make it as simple as possible so there definitely are some lizards who come in and you mentioned the skinks before blue tongue skinks regularly have uh, bits of their shed particularly if the husbandry is not quite spot on and maybe sometimes even if it is pretty close there seems to be a encircling piece of shed that will uh, get caught on one of the toes and then act as a tourniquet leading to avascular necrosis and so those sorts of lizards would come in and honestly Brendan there would be times when when I've been um, waxing lyrical to a client, playing with the lizard and talking to them about the massive surgery we've got to do, and the lizard just catches the toe and it breaks off and it's all dry yes. avascular yes. necrosis and it and I've done the uh, amputation in the consult room while i've been while I've been um, lecturing the client and there's other times. So what We're- do you do then? Do you say it's $100 <laughs> for the consult and
1: 250 for the amputation?
0: Exactly, much. exactly. There, There are other times, and the difficulty I find with many lizard toes is that it can be a little bit difficult to be certain of the viability of the tissue inside that there's often a... Uh, what I think of as almost like a living core. So the outside of the toe may be horribly avascular and dry, a dry, crusty, mummified black mass, but there sometimes is a, you know, a spike of living tissue with the bone deep inside. And so if you do just go, you know, I've seen these before, I'm going to just cut it off. You can sometimes end up with, first of all, uh, a reactive lizard because it's painful uh, because the bone and adjacent tissue is still alive and and a bloody mess as the... The um the sectioned piece of toe continues to bleed. So making that decision about the viability of the tissue, I find to be the critical one. And the ones uh, you don't always get it right because it isn't always easy to tell. But um, but trying to make that decision and uh, and react accordingly, I think, is the plan. I would say.
1: Well, you've hedged your bets there, mate <laughs> But As I agree, I always do. and that there are variations of the of the injury or the toe necrosis with these, and a, a lot of them are those those dried sort of necrotic toes that have developed over time, and it may be from various reasons. The retained shed is, is is one obvious one there, Mark, um, and they're 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 much more common than the. Than the traumatic sort of toe injuries that we end up having to amputate that has a you know vi- viable toe or was viable you know that that day before it had the injury there Mark and yeah it's it can be a bit of a challenge to assess whether there is any viable internal core that may be painful there and it's a yes I do as far as my techniques and, and approach to these that they can be everything from. Literally just just touching it and it snaps off like you mentioned there to to one where we might put a bit of local on there admit the admit the lizard for the day perhaps give it a little bit of a, a um, pain analgesia or an opiate um, for instance um, injection and then then um, something local around that area like emla cream etc and then um, then just literally snip it off or. The other end of the spectrum is the one where we think it's you know um, obviously going to have um, pain receptors there and and it, it's something that we need to do under a general anesthesia. So um, it's it can be a bit of a challenge deciding on on which of those we do have there. But yeah, a lot of them are those sort of necrotic um, ascending you know, ne- necrosis toes with them. So my you know my my my. my my second question or third question is, <laughs> is the one that I really wanted to get to for this podcast, Mark, and that is what do you do once you've chopped or pulled or tapped or accidentally, you know, remove that piece of the toe? What do you do um, to, to, to that remaining tissue there, Mark? Do you leave it open? Do you put something on it? What do you put on it? Do you suture it? Um, do you
0: bandage it? Well, I think that my target always, my objective always is to get to a point where the healthy living skin covers all the the parts of the feet. If if I have that patient where there is a necrotic toe, an avascular necrotic toe, and and it breaks and falls off there's going to still be an avascular portion remaining where the break occurs most of the time is not at the junction between the the living and dead tissue and so I always worry that um, residual pathogenic agents dermatophilus or other organisms that might be invading that um, dead tissue that they can cause the problem to ascend and become more and more complicated. So I suppose the answer is that my objective is to close the area over. The practical reality in, in, in clinical practice is that once the vast majority of the troublesome toe is gone, um, most clients are disinclined to pursue a more aggressive surgical removal of the remnant. And so you are left with uh, trying to set something up so that it doesn't become worse and it can heal, and I suppose in those situations we use some topical medication, either something like Betadine on a regular basis, or something that's going to limit the 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 likelihood that pathogens in the remaining dead tissue uh, have an influence on the the adjacent live tissue. Does that answer the question, Brennan? Yes,
1: it's <laughs> it's fairly similar to what I what I consider there. It, it's, it's and and expanding on that, it's also making sure we have a good chat to the client about the the post treatment husbandry of the enclosure there, Mark and I usually go back to really bare bones enclosure there and give get them to do a, a full left hand clean of the enclosure and just have paper as the only substrate for several weeks there to try and limit any chance of those those bugs taking off again there um with 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 that animal and yeah it's um yeah i think people you know we our colleagues do everything from um put in um the the iodine type solutions and i certainly like using those as well as part of the process with these more supposed simple it toe toe issues when we might only have one one little um, part of a digit affected to even smearing um, smear in the area with, with flamazine um, equivalent there. Um, if it's if it's spreading over it two or more of the toes there, then I may consider doing that at um, almost like a wet wet bandage there mark with flamazine or something and showing the owners how to change that every day as well um, with it it is a it is a challenge with those traumatic ones that feels the traumatic ones where it's just a sudden you know the, the lizard's caught itself and and, and and panicked and it's had a you know almost a stripping of the skin or or, or and or a fracture of that that toe so it's a fresh, um, obvious traumatic amputation. I have tried to suture uh, some of those, and and uh, gee, it's a bit of a challenge with some of those little little guys, isn't it, Mark? My, my approach is similar to what I'd be trying to do with a with a tail amputation, trying to remove the bone um, up a little bit further and leaving a bit of soft tissue to try and pull across the the skin there. But uh, gee, you need some pretty fine. Suture material, don't you? And and it's frustrating when you get one where you think you've got selected everything correctly and it, and it just keeps pulling through the skin there. And in the end, I might end up just, just you know, just almost like taping it together and, and letting it heal secondary intention with them. Um, any tips for that sort of traumatic toe injury, Mark? repair? Do you,
0: I was going to ask, do you ever use um, tissue cement with them?
1: Yeah, I do sometimes um, with them. I'm. I'm <sighs> I must admit I try and I'd prefer to try and suture them if I can. I'm just worried yeah. with the, such a small toe that if I try and put a tiny blob of the tissue glue it ends up being a massive amount for that tiny little toe anyway and that it might sort of leak its way, you know, into the into the subcutaneous or the or the tissue space and cause a little bit of more, you know, um, rotation. Yeah, yeah. yeah yeah so but yes I have um with them so you know I don't have any any fantastic tips otherwise as far as treating those it, it's a bit of a um as I've said about four or five times a challenge um with the, with those little ones with the traumatic ones there yeah. yeah but with the other ones with those ones that are anything from a, a mild to a, to a moderate to a severe chronic issue with them yes I think the the, the the key point that I'd always stress with those here, you know, look for what is the underlying cause of this with it. Is it a, a fungal? Is it bacterial? Does this lizard have some systemic um, condition going on, especially if we got more than one toe affected? affected? And that's where we chatted previously about um, other, other concerns like blood supply issues, you know, um, cardiac issues, you know, um, Know, blood supply to the extremities being part of the process, or other, other, um, other systemic or or, or um, organ disease causing causing the problem. Mark.
0: You've nailed that. That's such a take home. If there's one take home message out of this podcast, it's look beyond the toe because you're exactly right. There's often predisposing factors, whether it's husbandry or whether it's um uh, something intrinsic to the animal and another pathology, but um, they. Uh, particularly those chronic avascular, ending, ending up being avascular, they often have predisposing causes. And the other thing I wanted to mention, Brendan, was that many of those skinks, many of the blue tongues in particular, they cope very well. They might. We've had some of those lizards uh, that have lost all their toes, and and they have excellent quality of life because they don't depend, of course, on The toes, maybe as much as other lizards, but we definitely have had a few bearded dragons where a significant loss of toes actually impacts their behavior because of their tendency to spend at least some time off the ground. They, and I've seen them in the wild a long way up trees. They can have serious falls in enclosures if they have normal enclosures and they don't have normal nails. So, um, adjusting the enclosure for those arboreal animals once they lose a few toes and aren't able to grip may prevent more serious injury.
1: Great point. Yes. For that one that they rename fingers. You know, <laughs> um,
0: that's amazing. Some of they
1: they have a bit of a name to change some of these animals. So, yeah, I think that's. That's a little summary isn't it about toe amputation we thought we'd just cover a, a very specific little topic um for this this uh podcast mark and um it's one that you will be exposed to if you end up seeing unusual and exotic pets especially those lizards in practice because it's a, it's not an infrequent problem that we encounter in practice any final comments mark before we're out of here
0: No, I think we've covered that nice narrow topic very well. Thanks, Brendan. We're out of here. We'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus.